Hello, everyone. Welcome to Personalization Outbreak Podcast number nine. We had a great conversation about mental health in times of crisis last week, and now we shift to education and identify the trends in higher education as it reinvents itself to teach in remote environments and provide the necessary curriculum to better equip students to today's new realities that are impacting the workplace and the marketplace. Now, to discuss this topic, we invited Sandeep Krishnamurthy, the Dean of the Business School at the University of Washington, Bothell, along with our co-host, Professor Scott Lacey, Associate Dean of the Colleges of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. We discussed the complex variables that are impacting higher education that has long suffered from the limitations of standardization. We identified the root causes of these limitations, such as the tyranny of average, the boomerang student workers phenomenon, and the sage on stage versus the guide on side methods. So hang tight and enjoy the show. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Sandeep, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Glenn. It's my pleasure. So, Sandeep, I got to start off with this question. Now, why do you find your most authentic self when playing chess? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, you know one of the things that I've learned about myself is that uh, you know uh, that really um, I don't know why I'm wired this way, but I really have both left brain and right brain. Hmm. Um, you know, capabilities. And I think we all do to some degree. We may have, you know, developed more along one side or the other, but I find that uh, imagination and analytical thinking are not um, opposed to each other. They can coexist. And in fact, um, if you really look at um, some of the uh, greatest achievers in many fields, you know, for example, Einstein has said that imagination is more important um, than what we would commonly regard as, you know, kind of analytical thinking or critical thinking. Um, so I think um, the creative imagination uh, provides an impetus. Um, and I think it really melds beautifully with analytical thinking at the extreme, I think. And so um, I enjoy both sides of it. I enjoy sort of the, uh, the me mechanistic calculation part of it, but I, th I don't like to stop there. I think the element of surprise um, visual pattern recognition, um, you know, the role of a structure, um, you know, conceptual understanding uh, versus, um, you know, incremental understanding, a positional view versus, um, you know, um, you know, a, a really uh, a, some sort of a transactional view. Um, so for uh, those are the sorts of things that uh, Chess is great to, in, in pushing, and I'm completely self-taught, and I'm no grandmaster yet, but I'm very enthusiastic uh, chess player, <laughs> and, uh, and I feel like um, I learn something every time I play, and even if I lose, I, I, I learn. So I think it's about uh, 
I, I find it expensive. I find it uh, mm. innovative. Yeah. You, you know, Sandeep, you, you just brought me back uh, to remind me of, of my father. Um, it's been seven years now since he passed at the age of 97. But my oh. father um, had both left brain, right brain. He was a chemist, uh, graduate from, from Cornell, but he was also uh, a musician. And hmm. he brought these two things together to create what today is known as crossover music. Right. Uh, in fact, if you Google Los, like Los Angeles, L-O-S, and then my last name, L-L-O-P-I-S, you'll yeah. see the indel indelible impact he's, he's left, left on the world. And I would tell you that uh, part of his legacy is twofold, not just with the music that he brought, but he was one of the three chemists who formulated Miller Lite. So I share this because <laughs> wow. the, the, power of, the power of using both the left brain and the right brain could certainly take you on a path to multiplying one's legacy. Now, let's yes. shift gears. Let's do it. I mean, we're experiencing <laughs> unprecedented times with both COVID-19 and all this social unrest. I mean, Sandeep, aren't we, why aren't leaders prepared enough when crises strikes? Now, I understand that these are unprecedented times with uh, crises that we could have never expected. Well, maybe one side of the ledger. But why, yeah. in general, aren't leaders prepared enough for crises, in your, in your opinion? Yeah, I think, you know, one can answer that from, uh, you know, many in many different ways. But let me start out with a higher education perspective. Please. So I think the way leaders are taught uh, really affects how they lead. Um, and so if it goes back to how they were taught, right? So if you go and look at the education that the current crop of leaders uh, received, a lot of them were in a class and um, they were part of uh, an educational system where what I call the tyranny of the average uh, pretty much held. So essentially the, the focus of the class was in explaining the mechanics of business, how to read a financial statement, how to optimize a supply network, you know, um, and, and so on. Nothing wrong with that. You know, at the same time, the, um, the class typically is pitched to the average student and you know the knowledge that people receive are you know commodified mm -hmm. and they're in modules uh, and so it's like so imagine somebody somebody's brain a leader's brain they have different boxes in them you know one for marketing one for operations one for finance and some people have bigger boxes for some things than others mm -hmm. um, but i think uh, where you know uh, the leaders have have failed is I think the the personalization the personalization part comes in the application of this content. Hmm. So one could take all of this information and the way that one applies it uh, to one's particular organization is what makes the difference. And I think at this point, um, people are trying to apply you know uh, generalizations to very specific contexts. And I think we have trained leaders who do really well looking in the rearview mirror. Uh, they want to know what the benchmarks are, what the historic, um, you know, moments that we can learn from that we apply to today's situation. Guess what? I think both the, you know, the two big phenomena that we are facing right now, um, I think are both are so extraordinary. Um, we already have, you know, what I would call the trillion dollar virus. 
you know. Uh, this is 9-11 multiplied by Katrina. Uh, this is no uh, small event that we are facing. And then I think the, um, the, the, the unrest that we are seeing, uh, highly exceptional event. I think both of those call for very specific skill sets that have to be um, brought to bear. And people have not learned those things, right? So for example, in the case of COVID-19, one needs to have an understanding of, you know, healthcare management, emergency preparedness, you know, epidemiology to some degree. How do you read the statistics? What matters? What doesn't matter? Mm. How does one, you know, really right-size the scale of the phenomenon? Mm. And I think the reason people people keep asking me, why is the, you know, stock market acting so weirdly, right? You know, one day it's down, one day it's up. And by this time, I, I had a friend who called me two months ago and said, prepare for, you know, the Dow Jones to be at 10,000 in, in two months. He said, you better get out of your retirement now. And well, that hasn't really happened, you know. Um, so the reason is that people are not able to understand the phenomenon that we are facing. The business leaders are reacting at different levels. Some people are still optimistic. Some people are neutral. Some people are somewhat pessimistic because they don't understand what we face, right? Is this a temporary phenomenon? Uh, is this something that um, is massive? Is this something that can be adjusted in some ways? I think people don't quite know. And so I think it goes back to um, at what point do people bring in, you know, their individuality as leaders in, mm -hmm. in, in circumventing problems of this scope and size. And um, I know, you know, C-suite leaders, for example, who did not want to acknowledge the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And finally, people had to convince them, no, let's just go listen to people of color and in our, in our organization. And let's just, just hear them out. You, know, you don't have to say anything. Just hear them out. We'll do a listening session. And I think people come out of that, you know, feeling so uh, awakened, but then they have an action impulse. They want to do something. Yeah. But, but sometimes um, when people do something abruptly, um, you know, without, you know, uh, kind of getting all the stakeholders on the same page and having done the right analysis, you know, it, it falls apart. It lacks credibility. Uh, and so, so it, I think the, so the second part of it is that understanding the people side, that everybody is different and everybody wants a different, something different from the organization. You know, there are some people where if the CEO sits down with them for five minutes and says, Glenn, what do you want from uh, AT&T, Amazon, you know, whatever it is, what is it that you want from the company? I mean, that is going to be something that would make their day. They would post on social media. They would say that this is the kind of organization where people are actually listening. I may not get everything I want, but at least the CEO knows what I want, right? And we've lost that. We have large organizations. Imagine a company with 50, 100, 200,000 people. I mean, you have middle managers who then have subordinates report to them. They completely lost track. You know, the sorts of problems that the CEO is solving is very different from the ground realities of the individual employees. And as a result of that, people feel disconnected. They feel like, oh, we're just getting something. It's not clear if that's of value. And it's not even clear if the CEO even knows who I am and you know, what makes me tick or what, uh, what brings me to work every day, you know? You know, Sandeep, boy, what a way to start this conversation. Um, you said so many powerful things. And then, Scott, I'd like for you to 
jump in on this. Number one, we lack intimacy. Fundamentally, um, there's a disconnection because people don't believe in the things that they're told and they crave greater intimacy. And when they feel that intimacy, they want to take action. Much like you said, once they had that learning session, people began to think of things, uh, think of ways that they can help. Um, but yet when they ask what the actions are, um, oftentimes there is no plan to put in place. Why? Because what we've learned from uh, analyzing standardization and institutional strategies over the years, uh, we limit individuals rather than uh, enable their individual capacity. And so now that there are these two monumental crises uh, in front of us and the time is called for people to act, they're just waiting for direction. Right. So, uh, <laughs> and, and so we've, and this has become very true. And so what, what typically happens, and again, you can react to this, Scott, you can react, but what I find in these extreme cases, and I, and I see the extremes of personalization and, and standardization playing out right now during these moments of crises, and it goes back to the other thing that you said. You said they lead based upon what they've learned or what they've been taught. That's how they lead. Exactly. And we're, we're finding standardization, uh, in this case, uh, reacting to two big things that are extraordinarily personal in very extreme ways uh, exactly. because they believe that if they go extreme, they can neutralize and they can feel that they can come back to uh, what makes them uh, feel safe. And so I'll, I'll, I'll transition this actually back to you, Sandeep, because I'd like for you to react uh, to the following statement that Scott, our friend Scott, made uh, just a few months ago uh, in a Forbes article when he said, a crisis of this magnitude, and he was re really referring to COVID-19, has the power of putting us all in a state of disorientation because we can't lean on the old standards and those things that used to give us comfort because they aren't relevant anymore. How do you react to that? And then Scott, if you can react to Sandeep's response. Yeah, you know, basically, um, so I was recently talking to a student and she was explaining to me the company that she works for they have a diversity working group. And she said, uh, we all got together when all the Black Lives Matter marches were going on. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, everyone came and they were all very supportive and nice. It's like, okay, great. And, and then what happened? And she said, then we went back to work. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so so the, the idea is people are... They, when people are disoriented, so taking Scott's idea of disorientation, what are some of the things that we observe? Hmm. First of all, we have a paralysis and we have, as a result of that, we have inaction. Basically, people are saying, oh my God, I don't want to do anything that's going to blow things up, okay? I may have said one thing that is really bad and that may blow things up. So I'm going to err on, the saying, on saying, oh, you know, I, I want to be there for you, Glenn, but I mean, that's it. Like, I'm not really going to get into, hey, let's put together a plan of action because uh, the risk seems very large because I don't understand what I'm dealing with. I feel like I don't have the expertise, you know, and then that leads to agency, which is uh, who am I here to solve this mm. problem? Is it up to me to solve the problem? 
will I be politically hurt uh, uh, if I solve this problem? You know, things of this nature. So there is uh, the disorientation leads to uh, inaction and paralysis, you know. Uh, the, uh, and so a lot of people, you know, report this happening, you know, all over the place where, you know, people don't know what to do, right? And uh, the second part of it is that um, during crises and moments of disorientation, people are trying to learn. You know, everyone is trying to get involved and saying, let's learn. And they go about learning in a particular way. Some people learn better from books, so they go looking for books. Some people learn better from peer-reviewed journal articles, so that's what they're looking for. Pretty soon, they arrive at a point where they say, there's nothing out there, you know, that is really going to help me hmm. in these scenarios, you know, uh, because what I'm facing is quite extraordinarily different. So what they resort to is social learning. So you have people, you know, forming support groups. Um, you have people at all levels, you know, saying, so I've been in, invited to a social community of deans. I've been invited to a social community of tech leaders. I've been invited to a social community of HR leaders. They're all trying to, you know, put their you know, heads together and say, let's engage in social learning. Let's try to figure out what are the best practices um, that, that your organization has already learned and that I can benefit from. And so I think, uh, so there are two kind of tangible ideas there in terms of uh, uh, what one, one uh, experiences. And my hope is that the learning is going to actually accelerate, you know, more proactive, you know, engagement with both these moments um, rather than kind of a, a either a knee-jerk uh, inaction or saying that somebody else is going to do it, you know, it's not my issue. Uh, I hope uh, people are able to kind of uh, process that and get to, you know, some sort of more proactive engagement, I would say. Over to you, Scott. That's, wow, man. I feel like, Glenn, I just, I think I just met a long lost brother. Uh, <laughs> I think, I don't know, separated from birth. I don't know what it is, but I, I'm with you. Um, I, one of the things that I'm really excited to, to, to think this through with you, uh, one of the reasons is because of our common experience in academia, even though we might be in different sides of the university. And um, the one thing I'm seeing coming from your comment uh, uh, about this last quote was, uh, something that's come up time and time again in my own thoughts, and that is people just dream of and desire freedom so much. It's all they can think about until they get it. And then they don't want it anymore mm -hmm. because it scares the hell out of them. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that you and I have the benefit of, and it's one of the gifts of our occupation, and that is the one-on-one -on -one time we do get with students, not as teacher student, but as advisee advisor, right? right? We get to kind of play the what I might call in the, the, the sort of the village back in Mali where I've that, that taught me pretty much everything I know. Um, it gets us uh, sort of that elder relationship in a way that's esteemed differently from credentials. It's more human. And I yes. think that's something that most people outside of academia don't really get unless they've had a chance to be the elder part, not just yeah. this, the, the junior. And so what I'm thinking and I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. When we're advising students, right, do you run into this? where we see a student who is kind of coming into their own. Maybe they started off in, in medical, sort of a medical school, sort of medical track, and they realized the bio or the OCHEM just didn't do it. So they kind of start switching. They might move to marketing or psychology or something. But what I find when they get into that moment, when they finally cut the cord and said, I'm no longer a pre-med student, yeah. that when we go to the next step and say, so what do you want to do with your one in precious life, buddy? Yeah. 
they have no clue. Yeah. And it's, it's not that they have no clue, but they have, it's what you talked about. It's a paralysis of indecision. And so what happens is there's so many choices, they're afraid to make any one of them because they yeah. feel that the, the, the stakes are so high. So what I'm curious from your perspective as somebody that bridges both the academic side with the sort of student relationship and mentorship, but also on the business side, right. how do you see this paralysis of choice um, in business in terms of its relation to what we see with our students all the time when they're finally told, do whatever you want. And yeah. the first thing they want to do is say, well, could you just tell me what's, what should I do? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, so, so a few, uh, you know, kind of responses to that, Scott, I, th I think that's great. Sure. So um, the first thing is, you know, I'll, I'll maybe, you know, since you're an anthropologist, maybe I can uh, offer a story. <laughs> Please. Oh. Hey, man, that's all we got. All we have is stories. <laughs> Everything else is just you know, packaging. <laughs> so I, I will let you unpack the symbolism and, and all of that of that. But, uh, but, but basically a few years ago, um, you know, we uncovered a phenomenon, you know, in our university. And the phenomenon was like, uh, you heard of the boomerang, you know, uh, kid, right? Yes. Goes to college and moves back with mom and dad. Yes. We were having boomerang student workers. So basically you had somebody who, uh, well, they came to the university, they were, you know, in undergrad program and they were part of, you know, sort of, a, you know, student services where they were advising international students, you know, running an orientation for new students, you know, whatever it is. And they bought into what our institution you know, was offering them so much that they were unwilling to explore what was, what lay outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, no, 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 uh, you're, you're a student worker in, in a business school, you know, so we are training you to be the next leader of AT&T. We want you to go lead Coca-Cola or we want you to start a company that becomes the next Google. You know, that, that's, those are the kinds of aspirations we want to, to leave you with. And instead, I think what we sometimes find is that people are unwilling to leave the, um, the warmth and comfort mm. of uh, something that they know to explore something uh, that uh, they view as risky. And I think um, uh, the result of that is, uh, you know, sometimes people actually come back. So, so they will work for two years and they call me and say, hey, and I'm like, great, let's talk as alumni. What do you want your school uh, to look like? And uh, uh, 15 minutes later, I realized they're asking me for a job. They basically mm -hmm. want to find out if they can come back and work for me. Mm -hmm. And I keep trying to tell them, look, don't think that this higher education is a place where you can come and just like retire and there's no work going on, you know. <laughs> we work really that. hard, you know. <laughs> and so... Um, so again, uh, what I think is a few things are going on. I think the first thing is, I think students are afraid of the unknown, right? Yes. And they do not, they have not adequately developed a model of the external world or the, a model of what life itself is through all their experiences. So they, they lack some experience. As a result of that, they're going to say things like, gosh, you know, I, I don't know, you know, if I want to work in, I, if, if, even if I ask them, so for example, I just did a workshop for students on, on career preparedness and so on, just helping them on their way out. And I was asking them, do you want to work for a large company or a small company? Um, do you want to start your own business? Uh, uh, do you think 
you're a better fit at JP Morgan or Google? Where are you a better fit? And after a while, people are like, look, I don't know. Because the other part of this is not only do they not understand the external world so much, they don't understand themselves. Exactly. Right. Okay. So, yeah. so, you know, uh, so the human being, I mean, ourselves, you know, for us, that's the final frontier. I mean, we can create all kinds of models of what's out there. So they don't know um, if they will react under pressure, if they don't know if they'll be persistent, they don't know if they can manage conflict and politics in a very ambiguous environment. They don't know if they're going to be learning or productivity demands placed on them that are so high that they may or may not be successful. And so I think, um, you know, a lot of them, therefore, uh, you know, uh, revert to, you know, some sort of simplistic behaviors um, rather than jumping off the cliff. You have to jump off the cliff when you graduate. Yeah. You right. basically don't know what's out there. And, and you have to, you know, create opportunities. You have to build your reputation, you know. So, and, deep, and, yeah. Oh, I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to sort of dig go, deeper go, go, into go. this thought because, yeah. you know, oh, good. It's one thing, it's very easy for us to, to sit and talk amongst other professors, our colleagues and such, and say, oh, these kids, man, why don't they just accept these opportunities? They can't see what they've got right. in front of them. They could change the world. Um, we can say that and we can blame it on the kids or maybe the world or the era that they've been raised in. But ultimately, we're the elders, so it's the world that we created for them. Um, yes. what, what are we doing that, that, what are we doing to unintentionally recreate these same exact barriers that you and I and Glenn are trying to knock down? Because it seems to me that we're very good with our words. We're very good with thinking this through and talking across silos. We're great at thinking about this, but obviously maybe we're not so great at acting on it. So where is it that our actions and our words are disconnected? And I'm literally, if, if nobody else wants to take the blame, I'll take it. Where are my actions and my, my yeah. words failing? Yeah, I think um, what I see is that we have given up the idea that ambiguity is important. Oh, I love you, man. So the idea is if you go and reflect on how you teach today, um, you know, at least again, reflecting on me, reflecting on what my you know, faculty are doing, uh, a few of them are willing to work with students and give them you know, you know, problems that involve you know, ambiguity. It's just like, uh, okay, there's a company, there's the profile, uh, they're into frozen seafood, sales are down, go. You know, it's like, oh, wait, what do you want us to do? Well, go study it and come back and let me know what's going on, right? I'm telling you what the problem is, and there's a company in decline, and I'm going to, I want you to go understand the root causes and then come back and explain to me what is going on. And um, a lot of students struggle with this. A lot of students want structure. They want to know what's in the exam. And so we're only able to achieve this in kind of upper division or graduate courses. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think even, you know, the, the, the Socratic uh, style of teaching, I'm not sure if it's, you know, being uh, pursued to the level that, um, that, you know, it could be. You know, why are some yeah. people poor? Why, you know, yeah. what is the number one way to get out of poverty? Yeah. You know, uh, and if you type into Google, you'll get some very strange results for these. <laughs> you will not really, you'll get incoherent answers. 
but can you form a theory of poverty, you know, in, in your mind and explain to others, you know, why is it that some people are poor, for example? That might be interesting. Glenn, were you saying something? You know, I'm, I'm, no, Sandeep, I'm just inspired by your words. And, and I have to, first of all, I'm so appreciative that you've taken the time for us to, to have this conversation. And I'm even, even more excited that you're going to be a, a featured speaker at the summit uh, on October uh, 30th. Uh, because this is the kind of conversation that people want to hear. You're not defending higher education in the past. You're bold enough to say, hey, here are things that are missing. And by the way, it's not just higher education's fault. These are systemic issues that thread from higher education to corporate America and other industries uh, throughout the world that have placed these incredible limitations on the individual to a point to where both of you are talking about that it almost freezes us. We feel trapped because things are supposed to be defined for us in this yeah. highly ambiguous world. I'm going to read you something, and I didn't plan on this, Sandy. <laughs> no, please, please do. This is fun. No, 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 because this is what it was all about, and I'm trying to, uh, you know, take on what you asked for. You said, you know, let's help us unpack this stuff. Yeah. Give you, um, so what happens when the business or the institution uh, defines the individual? You know, here's yeah. what happens. Um, yeah. You're told what to do inside the box you're given. Correct. Okay? So uh, this is how one leader reacted uh, to that situation. Yeah. So real data, real, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, feedback here from an executive who said, so what's, Fantastic. The, so, so what's the pro? Like, what's the good thing about that? And you actually alluded to it already. The pro is there are clear expectations. You know exactly what you're supposed to do. Now, what's the con? What's the con? Um, it takes us away uh, from our leadership style, what comes mm -hmm. most naturally to us. Uh, often the leader will not feel as confident in the task because in being told what to do, sometimes that actually conflicts uh, with how that leader would approach the problem and challenge to begin with. And this, this right. awkwardness is then detected by his or her team and can make them feel less effective as a leader. I mean, can you? It, uh, There's a lot in there. Yeah. No, but uh, yeah. there is yeah. a lot. Yeah. What, but what at the root of what we're talking about here is the conflict that we feel as individuals. And, and thus, it then becomes difficult for us to do what we really want to do, what we really think that should happen. I mean, could you imagine? And I can tell you this for a fact 80% of the workforce in corporate America, right. 80% yeah. feel that they must assimilate to this way of doing things. 80%. Yeah, that's a lot. Now, now, but yeah. this, is, this defines and explains why, we, why we're stuck right now. Uh, absolutely. At, at a time where this should be one of the biggest moments of innovation and opportunity in modern history. Now, let me explain why that's not happening. At least a perspective, Sandy. Sandy, yeah. you, and, uh, we, you and Scott can 
uh, kind of react to this from a higher education perspective. Here's the flip side. What happens when the individual can actually define the business? It goes back to what uh, Scott was talking about at the beginning, that we want all this freedom, but then when we're given, given the freedom, we don't act on the freedom. So what is the, the con of this particular environment? My leaders would be threatened. Okay. Well, what's the pro? Well, the pros are you get more engagement from all involved. Again, another data point from a different executive. You get more engagement from all involved in coming up with the solutions because it has more meaning to them. They take more ownership and they want to see the solution work. You also get more sustainable solution, a more sustainable solution, because you're now included in a wider perspective of the problem to be solved. And this creates a healthy culture where people want to come to work and be involved in redefining the business in how we collectively thrive uh, and move forward. So uh, again, I'll stop there, but I like to kind of volley it back to you, Sandy, Love it. because here's my question. Why or what? Let's forget about the past. What can higher education do to prepare students for an environment? And let's be clear on this. We're talking about preparing future leaders. We're talking about Gen Z, I would say at this point, right. uh, that don't want to assimilate. But yet, when they go into the corporate world that's led by people who learned about and are incentivized to practice standardization, there's a big conflict here. Sandeep? Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot there. You know, I, so, it because this is yeah. what we're solving for. Yeah. So the first thing is that um, work has an all-encompassing, overpowering place in our lives. You know, and I think Scott, you mentioned happiness earlier. I think a lot of people look for happiness through work. You know, they view themselves as, "Hey, I work for this company." That's that's how they introduce themselves. Uh, that's how they think of themselves. And in many cases, honestly. Um, True. Work has a higher place than their own health or family. I mean, this is true, actually. People don't want to hear it, but it is actually the, the truth. So, um, and I think this there's a long strand of, um, you know, a discussion around th this idea, but Americans particularly so, you know, embrace the idea of industry and they, they want to think of themselves as industrious people. Uh, that work hard to achieve, you know, what they want. You got to go get it. And that's kind of the uh, attitude. Um, and so I think if you, uh, you know, look at books that, that have been written, I mean, there have been a lot of discussion on why there's this concept of the overworked American. You know, Americans are overworked. And uh, if you go back to... Uh, you know, even the cartoons, uh, if you go back to the Jetsons, you know, yeah. uh, remember the Jetsons? So uh, we were we were going to press buttons and like, you know, big things would happen, right? And then we would just like sit back and talk about the state of the world and, you know, enjoy art and sip wine. That's what we were going to do, right? We were going to uh, have all this leisure time. But in fact, uh, that has not happened. Uh, in fact, it has gone the other way, even with automation, even with technology. I think you have, um, you know, work occupying a massive part of people's, you know, headspace, art space. You know, this is 
something that is their work is who they are you know um, and uh, the story i always tell my my uh, asian friends when i go visit them in terms of how you understand americans is people are so committed to their work you know here um and i think that level of commitment is something that is very important for them and you see it when there are layoffs right because people are completely unmoored they, are, they don't know what to do yeah. you know because that's all they knew right and my favorite story is you know bear bryant you know the, the head coach uh, yeah. university of football i think a year after he retired he died you know he just couldn't handle the idea that yeah. he had no work you know yeah. he, he couldn't handle the idea that uh, there was something beyond a, you know x's and o's in football i mean like, who am i if i'm not that yeah exactly who yeah. am i right and so um so i think the first thing is that you know uh, work has an overpowering place in our life but the second thing is i think people are looking for you know a solutions in all the wrong places um and i i see a gen z folks you ask them what is it you want from the workplace and they want things that are unusual so they will say that i want to you know uh, talk to my ceo i want to know how my ceo thinks about this particular legislation uh, i want to um you know uh, so to some degree they feel like they should bring themselves to work but they also feel that um, you know the the research shows that they have very little loyalty you know to, to the workplace they are going the other direction in, in terms of saying i i will sacrifice economic gain for doing some other things i want to go hiking etc so i know people who have retired at in their 40s or i know people who um only do you know 50% you know uh, kind of a job um so there is some you know there, there is there's something to be uh you know understood there you know as well um but overall i think um you know within an organization uh, definitely uh, this reminds me of uh, you know there is social control with inside inside of organization right and uh, so recently i was talking to to a friend of mine and he said he wants to do kind of diversity work within the organization and i said how does it look like he said i want to just get people together and talk and i said okay well, why aren't you doing it and it's like yeah i'm waiting for a meeting with my boss and he had only had time next week and i'm going to run it by him and then if he's okay with it and you know then i'm going to like you know make sure that uh, i don't cre- create you know too many waves with the uh, with the upper floor you know how it is yeah. you know uh, and so people like and i'm like look you know the stuff's happening today right like don't you want to talk about stuff today it's like yeah i know but i really better wait you know so it's like people are always waiting for approval on the darndest things yeah and um, i think uh, you know sometimes you know as managers i think we emphasize risk over value you know and uh, i think you go to a large american corporations hr is very powerful in terms of managing risk you're going to get a call from hr under a whole host of circumstances yeah. or nowadays it's email or whatever um and um, also i think uh, the way managers are evaluated um it is very much you know goes along the lines of you know getting people to focus on action rather than thinking about ways by which we can improve the work for example right so let's say we tell people look you're working 40 hours i want you to take 4 hours every week and your job in those 4 hours is to figure out how you're going to do the same job better okay and it doesn't have to be you know a 500 page book 
but feel free to write a two paragraph a bulleted list of here are some actions here are some things that can change and everyone gets better you know uh, why don't we do that and uh, a lot of times people will say there's no incentive for that you know look it's, it's not my job you know i see stuff but there's also um, some cynicism you know one of my big worries about this moment is that i see cynicism going up you know where where people are cynical of institutions they have a love hate relationship they know that you know they need the paycheck you know because they have to pay the mortgage because they want to live in a house um but they're also cynical of the dehumanizing effects of the organization and uh, so suddenly people have become very cynical of uh, police everywhere right um that's one institution that that has lost trust you know during this uh you know this whole set of events here but um when people start losing faith in institutions uh then you have you know bigger issues you know then people believe that uh, institutions are no longer serving their interests you know and but they have to participate so what you see now is lot of cynical participation mm-hmm. yeah i'm going to participate yeah i'm going to do the work and yeah it's not that meaningful and then i'm going to go home and then i'm going to be a video game king you know and that's yeah. where i'm going to shine yeah. right so it's like uh you know so do you know what i mean i mean it's like they're getting their fix elsewhere uh but it's it's a shame though because you know uh, there there can be more alignment between the two you know is, i don't think yeah is, is this is this uh, distrust and i i totally i'm with you on this the distrust in institutions um and i think at least as long as i've been alive um that's something that i've seen just on continually on the rise is right. uh, a a fail a, a falling uh level of trust with institutions and i'm wondering if it's with institutions themselves institutions are just things that people put together so we create them it's not like they are there and Correct. we can't do anything to change them that's us if we made it we can change it so yeah. i'm wondering what is your view on this question are we running away from institutions hmm. or are we uh, say institutions or are we running away from assimilate or from assimilation in fact i don't think we're running away from institutions because people are still coordinating and organizing and creating new types of institutions like those like 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 the the, the all these people that are organizing right now with this most amazing historical alignment of social movement Yeah what I think I do see is that they're not running away from anything. I see a group of youngsters that are or or youth that are running to something. They're not running away from it, something, right? Yeah. We I think in my generation it was about running away like denying stuff saying that's not me, I'm doing something different and as long as you weren't doing that you kind of got your your box checked. I think what's going on now is people are running towards interconnectivity. They want to connect they want to be part of something they want to be a person before they are a uh data analyst they want to be a person before they're a teacher because that's what that's what gets them excited okay. that's what brought them to teaching and i think if there's one thing the elders can learn from the youth is that um while we always look about why are you running away from that why are you yeah. leaving this perfectly good thing behind if we change our classes and start not looking at what they're running away from but what they're running to we might find that they're very much doing what we hope that they could do but we're too blind to see it. Hmm. That's that's interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting actually. Um yeah, you know, I think um uh there's also an intergenerational moment here, you know, Scott, because I think yeah. you know, so one part of it is institutions, but also there's kind of a intergenerational dynamic here. I know there are people that don't want to become like their dads or moms, right? You know, they believe that 
you know that they can be more that they can yeah. they can can be more engaged or more uh you know uh, uh informed of various issues and 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 so on so um yeah i think in general people are running towards meaning they want Me- yes. they want they want to um they want to understand they want they want they want meaningful you know sort of um uh, you know spaces meaningful sorts of uh, conversations but uh, you know I, i'm not sure uh, where we go from here though you know uh, i i think because uh, there is a lot of um you know for example in seattle we had this you know as they there's a group of people cordoned off in a portion of the city and they started living themselves and they you know, kept out the police for a while but after a while you know uh, it sort of collapsed i mean the police stayed away for a while and then two people got shot uh, including an african american person wow. well the police came back so it's a mess i mean it, uh, so i mean i am all for the expression of um oneself through those kinds of entities but yeah. it creates you know it doesn't create momentum beyond the here and now right so it becomes this kind of a sporadic celebration uh, rather than something that builds up uh, and i think uh, that leads to its own cynicism where people yeah. feel like uh, yeah we did something like super innovative you know super super outside the structure and you know we were you know expressive we 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 said what we had to say you know and we took a stand you know and so on so we had voice in other words uh, yeah but uh, you know the i think where the struggle with is how does one you know translate that into enduring structural uh, commitment yeah well you know it i'll give a perspective and then you know we could speak for hours but i'm going to yeah, this is i this is this is wonderful we will speak for hours this is just the beginning so, this so, is this is awesome i can do this all day yeah no no it's fantastic so this is my space yeah. <laughs> it is your space man clearly so so let's let me give a perspective and then um so i actually believe uh sandeep that what we're experiencing now in society is is going to trickle into corporate america more and more and more each day and in in many respects corporate america is lucky that we're dealing with covid because if everyone were to be coming back to work uh there may be a revolution i mean yeah. it, this has been the moment um that i think many one. people have been waiting for with respect to hold on a second who am i as an individual where does my individuality matter because these examples i gave you earlier about the business defining the individual and the individual defining the business it can't be one way or the other right we have to find that healthy balance but standardization just can't scale in its current form and right. and, and part of this uh, leads to uh, my my direct response to what you're what you're asking uh, sandeep is uh, today much like a student again i like for you to react to this uh the employee is going to and they are already expecting more from their employer and it's not just about what they think about black lives matter uh and other uh social issues it's how can i be part of the solution and how can you as my employer create the environment conditions and systemic uh opportunities for us to 
be part of the solution. And, right. and, and historically, these things have been one-off tactics, right, to just neutralize. But I don't believe that that's going to be accepted anymore. In fact, those organizations that try those short-term tactical approaches, they're going to lose top talent. In fact, yeah, yeah. Uh, someone recently asked me, well, what's going to happen with these 40 million people who are unemployed? And I know that number's growing. When they're given the opportunity to come back for work, uh, there's a lot of top talent there. They're going to yeah. have greater expectations. So I'm sharing this because I believe that in higher education, because this is going to, you know, this is part of the whole value chain, there's going to be an expectation for higher education to yes. help prepare students for what is this new reality. And part of the new reality is yeah. it's okay for the student or prospective talent to have greater expectations from their employee. So in other words, what's going to happen next? There's going to be some systemic changes, and they're not going to be those driven by compliance. They're actually going to be systems that need, yeah. to, be re to, need to be reviewed because the employee isn't going to be tolerating the old ways of doing things. Thoughts, Andy? Yeah. You know, I, I think um, talking to the students, uh, what I see is that the first thing that they want is for people to acknowledge the moment that we are in. Yes. So imagine that I'm teaching a course on financial derivatives and uh, you know the, the, the world is uh, burning, but I walk into class and say, okay, let's go. Uh, in the last class, we talked about this and you know, now I'm going to talk to you about uh, call and put options. And I mean, for them, that would be deafening. So the first thing I think that I see uh, very clearly in terms of what is being formed is um, you have to acknowledge the moment as a leader, as a manager. You cannot just kind of uh, say, uh, yeah, stuff happens, but okay, let's get back to doing work in telecom, retail, healthcare, you know, logistics, yeah. whatever we do. I, I mean, it's going to lead to a lot of, you know, lost productivity because people are going to go around saying, why won't he talk about it? You know, yeah. uh, what's going on? You know, why can't you just acknowledge that this is like a big deal? So, um, so I think the first thing that I see is that acknowledgement piece that, and that they see that as a starting point towards engagement, you know, and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the whole idea that, you know, I'm just working for a company um, always creates the position of neutrality. Right. So a lot of leaders, a lot of managers are, are trying to say, again, back to tyranny of the average. Gosh, I don't want to rile people up. I'm, I'm going to keep it like drive this right down the middle of the road. OK, just want to don't want to piss off anyone. Just going to be calm over here and and say, well, and use all kinds of evasive words. Well, Scott, you raised some very interesting points. You know, I'm just going to say that and leave the meeting and not care and not do anything. Yeah. You know, uh, and so I think. Uh, so tolerance for bullshit hopefully will go down, yeah. but uh, but certainly I think um, there will be an interest in in saying, yeah, we are supposed to talk about this other stuff, but um, I mean you have to start acknowledging and uh, this a lot of times in like professional schools like you know business law engineering and so on. Um, People feel like, hey, it's my job to teach them financial derivatives. You know, who am I to talk to them about racism? 
Mm-hmm. You know, uh, who am I to talk to them about systemic racism? I, I don't even know what that means, right? right? So, well, you're a professor. You can educate yourself. And, you know, I can share some articles with you if you want. You can take a look. And we're not asking you to be an expert. Same for a leader. You know, I'm not asking the CEO to be an expert in critical race theory. You know, there are enough professors who are, who are that. But what we want the, the CEO to do, the VP to do, a GM to do, is to say, look, something big is happening. And I don't understand it. Okay. And I want us to do good. I'm not even sure what that looks like. So acknowledge the moment and acknowledge the ambiguity. You know, it is no longer the case that you are, as a leader, expected to have all the answers. Please stop that charade. Please stop it. Okay. Nobody's expecting you to come and say, oh, I'm a strong man. I have all the answers. No, no, no. Say, look, something big is happening. I don't understand it. I'm not sure anybody does, but I want to piece together some some conversation where uh, we want to be agents of good, okay? And how does one do that in this yeah. moment? Yeah. Or, or even how do we simply engage this moment? You know, what is your perspective? What do you think we should do? And if there are some quick wins, maybe we can just go off and quickly send out uh, an email saying that, you know, that we stand by, you know, PR will take care of that. I mean, th- that's not even the VP's, you know, contribution. We all know that. Uh, so, you yeah. know what, Sandeep, I want to jump in here real quick because you're, yeah, go, go, go. you know, because, excuse me, but you're bringing up one of the most fundamental things that people want to see in leaders. Don't act or try to be the expert. Right. Things are moving way too fast. Right. I mean, that's why I often find even the term thought leadership amusing. Uh, because <laughs> if, if that's yeah. what you are, it better be your full-time job because otherwise, how can you keep up with it all? Yeah. And, and, and so I think this goes back to the importance of vulnerability. You know, part of what has given me hope in this process is, you know, parents that have uh, teenage or young adults as kids, uh, they're finding that their kids are the teachers and the parents are the students. And I think the same thing applies to higher education. Why can't their students be the professors for a half a day? And let they the professor, are. They already are, man. You know, let the professor be the student. Because you know what? This is what gets us to that balance of standardization and personalization. It gets us to recognize ourselves less as tr- part of tribes and more as being human. And, and yeah. so j- just some perspective. Scott, did you want to... Uh, play off this before I, I swift, shift I'd, gears because I want to talk love to, a, just a, a little, little bit about uh, Sandeep's uh, white paper that he really yeah. recently uh, published. No, no worries. No, this, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. Just a just a quick uh, connection with with all of this, and and um, I guess the one thing I would like to do real quickly is you know, Glenn, you know my my affinity for proverbs because proverbs take something that's very important and very complicated and allows it to come out in a way that every person around us can understand it. So if we are truly going for inclusivity, we need more proverbs. We need more metaphors that are inclusive and big. 
And you know what? One thing that I'm thinking about is we're talking about this in higher ed and business. How do we get others, including youth who haven't yet joined a silo, how do we get them into this conversation? And it makes me think of um, a topic that one of my um, mentors uh, in grad school focused on for a time as an anthropologist, and that was utopia. And I think it's an interesting moment to think about utopia because that's what we're trying to do in a way. We're trying to make a better, greater, perfect, just a better society, right? Yeah. The, the coolest thing about this guy's work, Sandy Robertson, A.F. Robertson, was that he studied utopian movements all throughout time and space, right? Different yeah. cultures, not just a certain variety. And the one thing he found that they all had in common is that they had one failure. And that failure is the ability to reproduce. The thing is, that shouldn't be surprising because here it is. This is, and you're going to, you're all going to get the metaphor in a second, I think, but I think it's important. Why did we create a utopia? We weren't running away from things. We were running towards something bigger and more inclusive and something that we felt would make us more human and more of a society, more of a species, right? And then the first thing we do once we achieved our utopia, right? Look at us. We're having a utopia. It's everything's good again. You know, the Coca-Cola commercial from the 70s. However, what's the biggest thing they do? They want to reproduce the utopia. So they've standardized it. And so the next generation that comes in is coming into this utopia, this perfect thing that we built for you. And what's the first thing they want to do? Run to something else. Hmm. That's why the utopia doesn't work. Because what we're doing is we're failing to listen to who leads. And that's the youth. We are elders. We guide. But the youth is the innovation. That's what we're failing to recognize, and that's what our standardized processes fail to recognize. And even those of us that consider ourselves as visionaries in terms of being able to create a new normal or a next normal or an inclusive newness, right, to humankind, the biggest risk that we we face is the fact that as soon as we do it and as soon as we think that we've made some success, the very first thing we're going to do, even without knowing it, is we're going to standardize that to make sure that everybody else does the same thing and we've just neutralized everything we've ever done. Yeah, very, 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 very interesting. I think um, yeah, a lot of that speaks to me, uh, Scott. So uh, I don't know if you've heard this, but uh, you know, I've heard of two models within higher education for what a teacher represents. Okay. And right, so <laughs> I think one of, one of them is called Sage on the stage. Yes, stage on the stage. They're dead, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think what you're talking about is what we call a guide on the side. Yes. I love you, man. <laughs> <laughs> so enough of sage on the stage. We want guide on the side. Amen. And, and then I think one of the things that, uh, and I've been successful with converting maybe, you know, just a couple of faculty on this, but I've been trying to motivate this idea of, creating curriculum around questions. So, okay, you're going to create, you know, you're going to teach Anthro 101. Help me identify five questions you want students to answer during the entire semester, Mm. right? And uh, we would like to go beyond definitions. So do not say, you know, what is culture? I mean, well, uh, sure. I then just go look it up in Wikipedia and it's like, boom, done, right? I mean, it's like, go away. so, but what, what is it, how is it that you want to, um, you want people to uh, engage? And to me, uh, I mean, the whole idea of the examined life is through questions, right? So yeah. we, we hand out too many answers, too many answers. So-and-so said this, and so-and-so came up with a framework for these. These are three tools to solve this problem. Answers, 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 answers. We're just giving them answers. 
So yeah. they're graduating with answers and they go looking for questions. Ah. And so instead, if you ask them a question, so let's say in a finance course, you say, how do you judge the financial health of a company? That's the question I want you to be able to answer by the time you're done. Or what constitutes a strong brand in a marketing, you know, uh, so we can think of more causative questions. I mean, and some could be descriptive, that's okay. But mm-hmm. they all require, they all allow for multiple answers, Glenn, to go back, to bring it back to personalization, right? Yeah. Is to say, look, I'm just going to give you the gift of five questions. You know, that's, that's my gift to you this quarter. I've really thought through these questions and I think they're important questions and I'm going to leave them with you. And I'm just going to, the way we're going to run the classes, I'm just going to, you know, arrive and just maybe start engaging with one question and then suggest readings that I believe can help us answer this. But you know what? You can go off and find your own readings. And if you want the class to hear about something that you believe is important, come back and share it with us. And we'd like to understand if, you know, your perspective varies from the norm within the class or if you have something, you know, so very interesting that it can be incorporated or it can change the way uh, the class dynamic um, currently is constituted. And I think, um, you know, uh, this can be very energizing, I think. No, no. First of all, you've just defined the class of the, the, the methodology for the class about questions that is really teaching people about ambiguity. That's, exactly. that's the beauty of what you just said. They, I love what you said. We give them the answers and they're looking for questions when mm-hmm. it should be the other way around. Right. And it's, it's, you just defined well, the dangers of standardization. That it yes. has to be these three things or these 10 answers. It's the other way around. Anyway, keep going, Sandy. No, I think Scott uh, seems very animated. I'm sure he, he, he has things to respond. Say yes. <laughs> yeah, man. And, and by the way, I'm so with you on this question mode because let's it. remember what's going on right here. Let's remember our, let's take a pulse. Where are we? Time and space. Okay, this is the information age. All we have is answers. As a matter of fact, we have so many answers we have too many answers, and that's a good thing. And so the worst thing we can do is try to give them answers or a, a, a curated list of answers that we think are out here. The only thing that we can do is not just, in my view, teach them uh, about how to form questions, right? We can model questions and help them learn how to ask questions for themselves. But the most important thing for me is too is the second side to that asking questions, and that is the, the curious um, and critical thinking um, uh, mentality that has the resources to find their own answers. And I say plural answers on purpose because right. Q- Picasso said it really well when he said with his cubism, I, do, I refuse to look at things in one direction. I need as many dimensions as possible. And you might not recognize what I see, but this is my world. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make the world more cubist, man. And let's do this for the students, man. <laughs> yeah, the, the, absolutely. The other thing to think about, you know, Scott, is I think frequently we are giving people uh, models of reality. Yes. Uh, and those are to be distinguished from reality itself. And so uh, I, okay, I've given you so many models of reality. And now, you know, I've graduated. I'm in a nonprofit in a different part of the world. Mm. Everything's different from 
you know, but what, what am I going to do? Start applying the models that I learned, right? That's right. Um, a model is only a reflection or an abstraction of reality. It is not, in fact, reality, right? So uh, there is this kind of famous saying that all models are wrong. Some models are useful, right? <laughs> so, so, so frequently we are, um, we are providing them models of reality uh, which are sometimes useful in reality and sometimes not. And I think in some situations you have to be adaptable to the reality that you find yourself in and, you know, construct your course of action. Um, and you're going to make mistakes. You know, but uh, but don't be so beholden to the model that you're like clinging to it for dear life now. <laughs> but you know, the train's about to leave the station, so <laughs> we just talked to you about airplanes. Yeah. But the train's leaving, okay? That it goes on 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 tracks. I mean, you you got to get in the train. This is different, you know. So uh, so I think I think about that too on how um, we are giving people too many models. You know, too many. Uh, ways of, you know, uh, understanding reality, and, and they they kind of equate it with reality, you know, before they graduate, you know, again leading to and same thing. I mean, Glenn, you talk about corporate leadership. My God, I mean, people will tell you, okay, can we use Porter's five forces? Uh, where's my SWAT? Where's my SWAT? Uh, this is CEO, you know, he, he wants. Where's my SWAT? That's his favorite saying. It's like want to see the SWAT analysis. Like, okay, that, that's one framework of understanding what we face, but, uh, you know, but that, that cannot be the uh, be all and end all, you know, yeah. in terms of uh, an, uh, understanding. So models are useful. We kind of do the SWOT, but then we're like, hmm, does this really capture the moment or uh, is there something more we want to say about this? I mean, that's kind of the next transition, right? Yeah, well, so <laughs> let me, uh, boy, again, we got, we're, we're way over time at this point. No, it's okay. <laughs> but, but, but let me, let's just have fun at this point. But Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm all for it, by the way. So, um, you know, a couple things that you said there, Sandeep, and, and Scott, this whole notion of utopia, powerful, powerful. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, how one's work becomes their identity. And, you know, one thing that, uh, Again, it's been part of this whole discussion, but I'll let me kind of put it in a in, in summary form here is that often, more often than not, that employee's identity is the brand of the company they work for. Mm -hmm. And so when they're there, they feel so connected to the brand and everything that uh, it stands for in the marketplace that should they be asked to leave? or things happen in their life and they're no longer associated with that brand, they lose a significant part of their identity. And the reason that they lose their identity is that they don't know and have never known who they are as individuals and how they can contribute to an institution to begin right. with. And, right. and I, I, I want to just bring light to this because in the work that, you know, my organization does, I am shocked at how many people have trouble evaluating themselves yeah. because they're so used to somebody else doing this for them. Again, just another uh, point of realization that we as individuals that are part of these large institutions 
are now dealing with unknowns. And because they've relied so much on the institution's brand to give them the answers, uh, this time there is no playbook. And yet this is an opportunity for that individual to help write that playbook, which now brings us to uh, this incredible paper that you wrote uh, titled The Future of Business Education. It's a commentary in the shadow of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know we've talked a lot about these issues, but I'd really love for you to go into something that really caught my attention. And it was really twofold. Uh, What does the transformation of, of, of the business school look like and I know there are two big topics, and you can, t- you can take bites at each of these or blend them as you wish. But yeah. also, what does the evolution of online learning look like? Um, but I really love what you said about the transformation uh, of, of you know, the business school, uh, because your viewpoints are it should be influenced by the student. Yeah, you know, so um, I I actually uh, believe that um, you know um, a series of things are going to you know kind of now be put in play um, that are going to have long term and not just short term impacts. There are definitely a whole lot of short term operational impacts that deans and presidents are worrying about. How will fall look like? You know, where do we put the plexiglass? How do we ensure the safety of, uh, you know, our students and faculty and staff? You know, sound familiar, Scott? A little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, uh, so I think, um, how do we support, you know, immunocompromised faculty? Uh, like a lot of operational, you know, sorts of things. But also, I think that uh, other than what's happening on the, on the surface, it, it, it feels like some big things are getting changed. I think so. So one of them, so I think of the transformation of the business school as kind of being shaped by the transformation of the student um, and the transformation of the university and what its place in society and and transformation of the business world. You know, if because the business world is going to change in, in dramatic ways and we're already seeing new things, you know, that are being, you know, put in place. And uh, so I think you're going to have really a complex set of changes that are going to get enacted. And um, the more we, you know, uh, kind of are able to navigate this effectively, I think the better off, you know, we are going to be. And um, so for the students, it's been very interesting that, um, you know, I think many of them have adapted to um, being in an online environment and they're able to, you know, successfully navigate that. But uh, I think this is just the beginning because I think many of them are going to um, want different things. Uh, a few, uh, in fact, last year, one of the students told me that what he and others are facing is that they end up in university and their parents are paying the tuition or they're working to pay the tuition. And uh, they find that what they're learning in class is not demonstrably distinguishable from what is available on various free sources. Yep. Wow. Okay. So this is something we have to take very honestly. And mm-hmm. I think this was a lower division student, meaning the sophomore student. So person is still not taking very advanced courses, but still the person is saying, look, many of these concepts can be um, 
can be learned from a whole host of free or cheap sources. So I'm not understanding what value I'm getting from the university. So I'm completely lost, you know, in terms of what am I gaining sitting in the classroom? So the student was also very, was known to be a troublemaker, was always asking questions, was correcting the faculty member because faculty member would say something, he would look it up right away and say, uh, Professor Scott, you said this, you know, but on this site, I found this completely different you know, explanation. How do we, you know, are you right or this site that I found is right? And the professor has to respond to that, you know, at the moment, right? Uh, so the person was really trying to get an education. But what that taught me is that um, students are going to, you know, demand more. And, but they don't know what they want, though. You know, hmm. I, I think they think they, they, they approach knowledge as Lego blocks. They, they're thinking they're getting a big, you know, red brick first, and they're going to put on some blue bricks on that, and then it's going to create a big, nice building. But, um, you know, they're, they think they're looking for answers, you know. But ultimately, you know, um, if we help them develop the, you know, the kind of the muscle that will allow them to disambiguate the world, you know, it's like I'm dealing with all kinds of complexities. Like what really matters in this situation? Hmm. If I can, you know, look at a very complex web and say, yeah, this, this happening, this happening, these are the three other things that are happening. Well, but what really matters in that situation? What is, um, how do we help them get there? You know, I think that is something that we'll have to work towards. And the other thing that I'm very uh, hopeful of is having personalized education. You know, right now mm -hmm. we have a class of 30, everybody is different. We are teaching uh, fishes to climb trees. I mean, there are people who are, you know, very different uh, than, you know, uh, than what the subject that they're receiving or they're getting an approach that is not really, you know, lining up with how they learn. So, uh, and then there are students who are way ahead of the norm or who feel like they're being held back. It's like, what the heck? So, um, oh, there comes Glenn's dog. It's okay. This is the beauty of life podcast. That's great. That's great. We're good. We're good. <laughs> okay. Keep going. Yeah, so I think, uh, I think what technologies can really do is, you know, bring out the power of assessments where we understand who you are, how you learn, how you think. And then based on that, we, rather than having one curriculum, we're able to kind of parcel off and think of like five pathways that we, there are five different types of students. And then I can look at how everybody is doing. And then you have automated assessments to talk about not just how people are scoring on a quiz or, or a midterm that we give, but how they're learning. So we're getting accurate learning data as we go through the class, mm. you know, and that allows us to fully personalize, you know, a course of education uh, when it comes to a single student. So you get what you need to solve the problems you're facing, you know, uh, and I think it is, you know, constantly collecting data to understand how much you learn so if you're learning very quickly, they might actually ramp up the materials. But, you know, uh, the personalized learning is, is certainly very valuable for especially, I would say, technical subjects. Uh, I think um, that is, it can really, really scale, you know, very well. But certainly I hope we don't lose sight of, you know, philosophy and reasoning and critical thinking, like the, the you know, the core of the university. But I also think that um, the current design of the university uh, is 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 flawed in the sense that we think of the course as a unit of analysis, and that you no know, once you're done in four years you graduate. I mean that's it. You know, mm -hmm. see you. I mean 
we have no role to play in your lives. And um, so a few years ago, you know, uh, this guy from uh, MIT, I think, came up with this concept of the 60-year-old curriculum. The idea is how do you create a curriculum that maps your learning needs for 60 years? And mm -hmm. the university keeps coming in to offer you various you know, refreshers you know, as you go along. And so meaning that we have an enduring and stable role to play in your life. And uh, we are supporting you uh, as you go along. As you evolve, so do we. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, we sometimes may have a learning rate that is higher than what you are facing in your organization. But that's great because now we can bring that and share that with you and uh, tell us and we can tell you what's, what's happening, what matters, what doesn't matter. And, uh, and so I think uh, these are the sorts of effects that I see. And uh, I'm almost, I'm calling it, you know, moving away from uh, the traditional university model to university as a service, that it's just a broad, you know, you know, framework that is available to you as you go along in your life and as you try to solve problems. So um, where the learning is personalized to your strengths and, uh, mm -hmm. and I think, but there we'll run into some challenges because we always have the situation where do you accentuate the strengths or work on your weaknesses, for example, you know? So, yeah. uh, uh, so how do we personalize? I don't think the problem is solved yet, but I think this is a very refreshing and energizing way for me to think about the future. Well, I can tell you that uh, personalized learning uh, is at, uh, in high demand. Yeah. And, um, you know, even in large corporations and, and what we've learned uh, ourselves is that a corporation can provide a, a playbook for how, you know, what the values, mission, vision, uh, you know, what all those things are, and then a set of leadership competencies or, or, or behaviors, and then people are measured on how well they uh, practice all those things. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be extraordinarily overwhelming, uh, especially if an individual uh, doesn't quite believe in the way things were defined for them. It goes back right. to that again. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, there, there is a, a move towards, again, how do we find that right balance by respecting the mission, vision, values, competencies, but yet how do we uh, personalize that experience for the individual so that they could accomplish those items on their own terms? So they're, they're, they're anti-conformist, but yet right. they're respecting standardization. And, right. what, and what you then get is uh, uh, an employee experience that is much more uh, rewarding, but they also feel that they're helping the organization evolve. And, you know, what we're finding from those more progressive HR executives is that this old way of here's the playbook, follow it, that's how you'll be evaluated, has actually uh, limited individual contribution in many cases. Yeah. Um, uh, has has been the reasons why people have left organizations because Correct. it's no longer about the brand. It's how they want to contribute. And uh, so these are some of the uh, dynamics that they're being faced with. So I really respect yeah. uh, that point of view because I believe that if we can get higher education uh, to respect this more personalized way of learning, it, it's really, if I can simplify this, it's going to prepare the individual how to navigate very ambiguous uh, corporate cultures. Yes. And, and I think that's probably, as I see it, not probably, one of the biggest things uh, that a, a 
a new employee, let alone one that's been there for 20 years because the organization's been forced to reinvent or acquire or uh, reestablish itself in the marketplace of how do I navigate uh, such, a, such a large institution where I don't know where I fit, how I can best contribute, or do I just play it safe and stay in the box? And as we've discussed, uh, these upcoming generations don't want a box at all. Uh, so, yeah. Scott, any uh, last reflection on what Sandeep said so that we can... All I'm going to say is, I actually, I got to go get ready for a, an orientation like in uh, 30 seconds. So I'm just going to say, I look forward to seeing you in October because we are nowhere near started, let alone yeah. finished, my dear brother. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Scott, thank you so much. Take care. Uh, you, go to, you hang on, Sandeep. I'm just going to, yeah, thank you so much. I, I'm, here. I'm here. I'm here. Sorry we went long, but... It's all good. We didn't go long. We just, we went short. It's just, uh, yeah, we got to go bring some students in, uh, for Fairfield U. It's okay. okay. Scott, thank you so much. Okay. We'll talk later. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Sandeep, it has been an absolute joy. Um, I thank, thank you so much for your time. Um, and uh, thank you again. And we'll, we'll continue the conversation as we uh, prepare for the summit here in October. But again, thank you for your time. And as I always say, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. You will do what others won't. And you'll keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thanks yeah. again, Andy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution. <laughs>